I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. This is our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. I'm joined by Maryland Executive Director for CBF, Allison Prost. Welcome, Allison, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Will. Thanks for having me. 2016 is going to be a great year. I already feel it. I hope you're right. A lot of of good (laughs) things are going to happen for Chesapeake Bay. So for our listeners, by way of background, on our policy work, CBF is organized at the state level in three distinct state offices in the three primary Chesapeake Bay states. So Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, of which they constitute about 85% of the total watershed. Each state has its own office of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation run by an executive director. And Allison in Maryland, for instance, you and your team really are the voice and the face of CBF in the legislature, in the executive branch, in terms of state policy. We are. We spend most of our time um, in the General Assembly, but also working with the regulatory agencies. And then what's nice about the Maryland office, we also have the staff to get their hands dirty and help implement those policies that we've passed at the state level. Getting your hands dirty on the farm at te- from uh, time to on, time? Yes, yeah, <laughs> um, on the farm. Uh, CBF has a farm down in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, but also out throughout the watershed, especially in western Maryland, helping farmers put in stream buffers. And then there's an oyster crew that... Uh, you know, is helping with the oyster restoration efforts as well. Very good. We do it all. Um, today, our listeners have the great good fortune <laughs> to hear about manure. <laughs> we're going to we're going to talk about manure because it's critically important to the Chesapeake Bay and all the streams and rivers that feed into it. Uh, when you look at the pie chart of where pollution comes from. You know, there, are, there, there are a number of sources, certainly uh, sewage, uh, industrial pollution, atmospheric deposition, runoff from city streets, but agriculture in total, because it is such a dominant land use, is the largest sector of pollution coming into the bay and the rivers and streams. And of that, I believe my data are correct, uh, manure represents about 50% of the overall agricultural load. Am I right with that? That's true. It's true watershed-wide, and if you look more specifically at Maryland, it holds true as well. You know, the manure that all the animals in the watershed produce ends up on the crop fields, um, and that's why it's such a large slice of the pie. As we grew up in school and things, we had sort of a romanticized (laughs) view of, of farms in which there are crops grown, there are chickens, there are pigs, there are some cattle, and it's a closed unit in which the waste is recycled and really is actually a benefit for growing crops and as a soil supplement. Manure is a a great uh, asset to agriculture because it does have nutrient value and it does uh, help provide and, and restore organic matter to the soil. What's the problem with manure in the Chesapeake Bay? Well, the problem with manure in the Chesapeake Bay is that the farm image that you just described, or as I talk about, you know, my kids have a Fisher-Price farm set, and it has a cow, and then it has corn and everything all in one place, and then they can fold it up and carry it around. (laughs) That's not what our farming system looks like anymore. We have concentrated animal operations where there's, 
you know, thousands of animals in a small space producing lots of manure, and that farmer may not have crops, may not be growing food for their neighbors or even growing the food that their animals eat. And so that manure has to leave the farm and go somewhere else. Um, and it, you know, becomes a problem because we don't have the same amount of land or crops to take up the nutrients that are so valuable in that manure. And that's the, the, the concept of a nutrient balance. Right. The, the amount of nutrients being taken up by crops is no less than the amount of fertilizer, commercial fertilizer or organic fertilizer, manure being put onto the right. land. And certainly um, the science is very clear that's out of balance. Uh, too much is running off the land, soaking into the groundwater and, and getting into the Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries. Um, when you, when you let, let's, let's focus first uh, on chickens. Uh, yeah. Chickens have gotten a lot of attention over the years. The big chicken companies, because they are companies that are mindful of the bottom line, looking to cut costs, uh, maximize profits, will concentrate chicken growers, they're called growers, mm -hmm. ind independent businessmen and women who grow chickens for the big companies close to the slaughterhouse. And that's right. part of the problem, is it not? That is part of the problem. They don't want to have to transport all of the chickens from their different grower operations a long distance to then take in for processing and then get distributed to, you know, throughout the supermarket chains. So instead, they try to have their growers in a close radius to um, their slaughterhouses. And what happens, that means that all that chicken manure uh, ends up concentrated as well. And if there's neighboring farms growing the grain for those chickens, then that manure is land applied in the same areas year after year after year. Um, and that's how the problem began. And the result we've seen, especially in some of these areas, the lower eastern shore of Maryland, for instance, are soils that are super saturated. Super saturated. Um, it is as though you already have a bathtub that is full and you just keep adding and adding water and it's leaking out. Um, the soils can't handle any more and so it goes through the groundwater into neighboring streams or if you've applied and then there's a rainstorm, it just runs off as surface water. So we have these hot spots of um, pollution going directly into our waterways just from years and years of too much of a good thing. So I would guess there's not going to be any more chickens allowed until that soil and the crops on it have taken up all the nutrients, am I right? You know, that would be a wishful thinking for 2016, but I don't know. I wouldn't make a resolution about that. Um, we see that people want to buy chicken. Uh, you know, and now in Maryland, we are producing for the whole Northeast as well as um, overseas buyers of chicken. And so those large poultry companies, um, they are looking at business expansion, not even just replacing old houses, but we are seeing a market increase in the number of applications going in. So we have to figure out that net balance that you referred to. You know, how much can we produce? How much can go out? And how do we stop any excess from contributing to these hotspots already? Uh, but to say there's not going to be any more chicken in Maryland uh, isn't accurate at this time, but we'll see. And uh, again, the old sort of romanticized version of a chicken coop, mm -hmm. a chicken house, is, is very different 
from what is in reality today. We're talking about uh, structures that are seventy, eighty, a hundred thousand uh, dollars, thousands of chickens, and the industry is called an integrated industry. So the big chicken companies, Purdue, Holly Farm, Tyson, etc., are called integrators because they control really the entire spectrum of the production. Maybe talk a bit about that. It's an important point to raise because, again, just like we think of the mom-and-pop farmer that had their animals and their crops and a farm stand for their neighbors, the chicken industry is what is called an integrated system. So you have the large companies that supply the birds, the feed, uh, talk exactly what those chicken houses have to look like, temperature, everything, to a contract grower. And that farmer or grower um, you know, raises the birds but is following a formula that they've been handed. And then once that flock of chicks grows up and is ready to head to processing, a new whole set comes in. So you may have four or five turnovers of thousands of chickens a year. Um, and the grower, again, is just following directions, um, doesn't own the birds, doesn't own anything except for the waste. So the big chicken companies will actually also own the mortgage on the chicken houses. They will more than often lend the money, provide the mortgage to a potential grower, uh, bring the birds, bring the feed, bring the antibiotics if they're used, bring the growth hormones, and the manure is left for the little guy, the farmer, the independent businessman or woman who is contracting to the chicken company. Yes. And what generally <laughs> happens with that? Maybe they have 10, 20, 30 acres in the back or not. So right now, um, all different things happen with it. Um, and I will say that it's very hard to track exactly what happens with it. Once um, the farmer, uh, we know how much the chickens produce and the farmer can say how much they may be able to put on their crops. That's one option. They are, do have acres and they can land apply it. Or maybe their neighbor down the street wants to come and pick up the manure because they have crops and it's cheaper to get it from your neighbor than to buy it um, commercially. Or um, maybe you know we will see that there's some waste to energy ideas out there to turn it into heat sources or electricity. Uh, but what's hard is we can't track the manure. You know, uh, we can't follow it from point A to point B to point C. But right now there's about three or four different things that happen with the manure, but it's all on that grower. It is not the responsibility of these big um, industrial corporate entities to come and pick it up. The Purdue's, the Tyson's, um, they don't have to take it off the farm and make sure it ends up being handled safely. So we've uh, I, I've seen a couple of red flags in this conversation already, but one that just emerged, lack of transparency in terms of where the manure is going, how it's being applied, what are the impacts. All of that is hardly definitive. It's hardly definitive, and it's very hard um, even if you just wanted to look watershed wide or in the state of Maryland, if I just wanted to find out, okay, there's 100,000, which is way low, pounds of manure produced, where did it end up? I can't go to Maryland Department of Agriculture. I can't 
pull the permits from Maryland Department of the Environment and have it add up to 100,000 pounds to know um, 20,000 went he to A, 20,000 went to B, and so on. Um, and that creates a management problem. It creates a problem for Maryland citizens to know how much is entering their county or their watershed. Um, and it makes it hard to know if the laws we've put in place are really being implemented. So we've got some good news for the Bay and some potential good news in the coming session. Let's first give a quick review of last year's, it's really actually took several years to get in place, but the balance, the um, nutrient management policies for saturated soils for too much phosphorus mm -hmm. called the phosphorus management tool. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, and Will, you're right. This has been in discussion for close to 10 years before it actually went um, into effect this summer. Maryland recognized that, um, in general, um, there is more phosphorus in chicken manure than the crops can handle. Farmers apply the chicken manure as a cheap, readily available source of nitrogen, and the phosphorus tags along. And over the years, since the crops can't take it up, it built up in the soils, and that's what we saw entering the waterways through groundwater and surface water. So the state decided we need to better manage for phosphorus. We've already been managing for nitrogen, but we need to tighten and recognize this soil buildup, this concentration of phosphorus. So Maryland passed the regulations that you now have um, much greater restrictions based on the concentration that's already in the soil. Um, you know, the excess that's already there, that if there is an excess, if you're in one of these hotspot areas, you cannot apply any more chicken manure because there's just too much phosphorus that comes along. Um, and there's, it's going to be implemented over four or five years. Uh, it's going to take all of us doing more to help with that implementation. Um, but it is, a, it is a strong policy, and we should see improvements over you know, the coming years, especially on the Lower Eastern Shore, um, since we are going to stop adding pollution to an area that already has too much. Well, I, I, I'm tempted to say what took you so long, but I really can't do that. I've got to say congratulations because this is an enormously powerful lobby in Maryland and in the other Bay States. And they fought um, this regulation, this increased scrutiny for, for many years, and now it's in place. Mm -hmm. Governor Hogan and the legislature met, uh, uh, came to a meeting of the minds, mm -hmm. And it's actually already started to be implemented, as you said. So some of the more egregious or some of the areas that have the highest concentrations of phosphorus, those landowners, those farmers had to stop, stop applying chicken manure la this yeah. past summer. That was one of the key parts of the proposal. And, you know, it was a meeting of the minds. Um, in the end, it was supported by environmental groups like Chesapeake Bay Foundation, as well as the farm industries, the Farm Bureau, the grain growers, um, because it was seen as a compromise. But again, one of the strengths was as soon as it went into effect this last summer, the farmers that had the worst concentration where there was the highest risk of pollution had to immediately stop. There was not a phase in 
um, or a, you know, a gradual decrease in their land application of manure. They had to immediately stop and switch to other sources of fertilizer that weren't going to uh, pose the same pollution problem. So we should know in the next uh, month or so exactly how many acres that turned out to be and how many pounds of manure were no longer applied. And, and you use the term compromise. This is a compromise <laughs> I can get very happy about because <laughs> yeah. The prior regulations, which came out at the end of the O'Malley uh, administration, actually didn't require anything to start happening for three, four, five years. And what this new um, uh, uh, way that this new writing of the regulations actually required that something, some areas had to start right away and the phase in would be four years, but at the end of those four years, when the other regulations might just have been kicking in, all saturated fields will have to stop applying manure. That's a pretty good deal. It, you know, it's a great deal, and I think one of the other reasons that I, um, yes, it's a compromise, but I am f in full support of it, as is, you know, the, the team that we worked with on it, uh, there was agreement among the industry behind this proposal that went in by the Hogan administration. And I think we're gonna see a greater level of implementation since there was this agreement as opposed to the farming community feeling as though another environmental policy was you know, being kind of pushed off to them. You know, um, and I think that you will see market increase in the results because of that. And, you right. know, when there's when there's commitment, when you feel ownership over something, um, we all know that we more readily do it and follow it. Well, congratulations! I know it was a, a huge effort among you, your staff at CBF, but also a number of other partner environmental organizations, and uh, the legislative leaders and the governor's office. It's it, it was one of those rare things where everyone felt like they got uh, what they needed. Yeah. Okay. We never rest. There, there's no, the, the, the job is not finished. So we're just approaching the new legislative session. There's uh, uh, some legislation we've been working with, again, our partners on legislative leaders to further improve the situation. Tell us about that. So earlier in this conversation, we talked about how the chicken industry is an integrated industry where you have the large companies at the top and you have the growers on the ground being left with the manure um, and not having responsibility over any of the other choices, any of the other ownership, except for the leftovers, the manure. So with our partners um, throughout the environmental community and throughout Maryland, we have decided to work on a piece of legislation that would put that responsibility right back on um, the industry. Since they control every aspect of it, we felt like they should take responsibility for making sure that that manure ends up being taken off the farm if they can't use it and being used or disposed of safely. Because man the manure is a commodity. We need to get it in the right places where it can be used, whether for energy, whether uh, you know as a nutrient somewhere else in the watershed or somewhere else in the state. And just not to interrupt, but the, the phosphorus in the manure is hugely valuable. And in fact, many experts predict a worldwide shortage of phosphorus. Right. Yeah, um, so I mean, if, if we can figure out how to better use this manure, 
um, we could end up diversifying the economy on the eastern shore because, as you mentioned, they're predicting a worldwide phosphorus shortage. And here in Maryland, we have too much. So we need to get it in the right place and in the right form. And uh, we feel that the large companies need to help with that. Uh, the phosphorus management tool that we just talked about is going to improve water quality so long as it's implemented. And it shouldn't be left just to the growers or just to the taxpayers to make sure that that implementation happens. We need the integrators to be a partner and we need them to take uh, a greater increase in responsibility. Uh, the bill simply says that the poultry companies have to come and pick up the manure unless their grower says, I have a use for it and can demonstrate that it's going to end up being used properly and safely for the environment. Great news. A long way till mid-April when the session will be over and we'll know what happens. Um, but the, the, the concept of large companies with tremendous resources, both financial and intellectual, to be asked to work on the kind of innovation that has made America strong, to apply it to this so that we can get a, a, a triple bottom line, if you will, a win for the environment, a win for the economy, and even a win for human health. Because one of the problems with too much manure are the ha harmful algal blooms, which result and they're the, the science, the health industry is replete with good evidence of the human health dangers of harmful algal blooms resulting from, from runoff of, of uh, too much nutrient from these sources and others. So the, the concept that the large companies will be applying their best thinking to how to utilize the phosphorus in the manure to the greatest commercial benefit and um, the benefit, as you say, of, of the economy for the Eastern Shore as well. It's, it's great news. Yeah, we, don't, we don't want people to think of manure as waste. It's only waste when it's misused. If it can be land applied somewhere else in Maryland to help our agriculture community, you know, if there are places elsewhere on the Eastern Shore throughout Maryland where we're trying to produce food and, and crops for not only the state but a much broader area, great. Apply it safely and use it. But when we have too much or when we have leftovers, yeah, let's all work together and figure out how to turn it into this commodity that we know elsewhere um, it can be. Uh, we saw a glimpse of it. You know, Purdue already has a pelletization plant. Uh, it hasn't been operating at capacity because they haven't um, had enough manure to operate it at capacity. So um, if this bill allows them to pick up more manure um, and, you know, turn that into a, a profit for the Eastern Shore and ship it outside the watershed, great. I mean, that's, that's a positive result. So this bill is not trying to uh, make it harder for anyone. It really is just trying to make sure that we implement those rules that everyone agreed to. And the pelletizing is important because it concentrates the volume of the manure, making transport um, right. more efficient. Yeah. <laughs> you know, instead of instead of truckloads of manure, it's it's bagged, it's concentrated. It's I think it's dry, but I'm not really sure. Um, it's just it's easier to ship and transport right. outside the watershed. So let's expand our conversation in the time we have <laughs> left uh, beyond uh, chickens. There are many other sources <laughs> of manure. 
And while chickens are a big uh, element of the manure issue in Maryland, it's not the only one in Maryland. And of course, when you move into Pennsylvania and Virginia, I know you talk and uh, have good relay, um, good exchange of information with some of your colleagues uh, in the Pennsylvania and Virginia offices. So g give us a little glimpse of, of the broader watershed issue related to manure and what are some of the other animals and concerns? So the other um, animals in addition to the poultry, because you do have um, turkey production, but it's a similar, a similar system. Um, the other one that we all at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation spend a lot of time worrying about are uh, dairy and beef cattle. Large animals, large quantities of manure. Um, you also have these concentrated animal facilities where you have not a lot of land, but a lot of animals. Uh, you don't have the same integrator system. So the farmer there most often owns the animals, um, but you still have a lot of manure produced. Um, and it's also much harder to transport. It is heavier, so the solutions um, are a little bit different, but the problem is not different. You know, if, if too much of that manure uh, ends up in, in one area, we see the same problems with it getting into the water quickly. So there's, you know, a, a few solutions uh, that we've worked on in Maryland that the other states are um, also working on, and one's very simple. Keep the cows out of the stream. Um, and this is one when I talk to my friends and neighbors or even more broadly, no one can really believe that it is legal um, in parts of the watershed for cows to um, hang out in the stream because the reality is when they hang out in the stream, they do um, end up going to the bathroom. And so we have a direct pollution source. Um, in Maryland, we have uh, put in a requirement for livestock exclusion. You're not allowed to have cattle in the streams. We're working on that implementation, uh, but it's a challenge throughout the watershed. Virginia tried to include it in their permit, or we advocated for Virginia to include it in their permit. Uh, we were unsuccessful, but we're not giving up. There is an incentive program and, and money available for Virginia farmers to fence their cattle. In Pennsylvania, um, it's going to probably be up to organizations like the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and others to educate farmers on the um, just how much it's beneficial for their herd uh, in terms of not getting sick um, and not polluting their neighbors' uh, stream, you know, streams to keep the livestock out. The Virginia situation, we really did a lot of work on that and even brought litigation against the Commonwealth of Virginia and lost in state court. So we're now working on other regulatory approaches. But you're right. I mean, the, the concept of uh, defecating directly into freshwater streams with all the critical issues that freshwater streams provide uh, and not only uh, the waste, but the damage to the streams from the cattle themselves spending so much time in the streams, destroying stream banks, destroying bottom uh, habitat. And when you look upstream from an area that has a lot of cattle in it and then look downstream and do the monitoring, the results are dramatic about the detrimental impacts downstream. One thing you mentioned, um, about the impact on the cattle themselves is, is worth spending a moment on as well because as I've talked to large animal vets, I understand that the impact on the cattle of wallowing in the water and in their own waste, uh, there are uh, problems with hoof infections, 
mastitis, udder infections, pink eye, and when um, uh, uh, calves are born in the streams, they uh, often don't even uh, make it out. $1,000 a pop with a lost calf. So this could be a very strong economic benefit to the farmer, to the rancher, as well as an ecological benefit. Again, one of those double or triple bottom lines. I completely agree. I mean, this is one where the science from the ecology, from the animal health that you talked about, all point to uh, you know the simple solution: keep the cows out of the stream. And there are resources available uh, to help farmers do this. Uh, you can um, apply for cost share dollars. There are organizations like Chesapeake Bay Foundation that will you know put some sweat equity in and make sure volunteers come out because it doesn't take much to keep the cattle out of the stream. It doesn't have to be an elaborate fence system. It can be one that you that farmers can move around um, as their cows are out to pasture, um, or you can plant uh, tree buffers. Uh, it, but it doesn't have to be a very cost intensive. Uh, practice to do, but it has so many economic benefits for the farmer that the you know the one-time investment in the fencing or the tree line can really make a huge difference. And we we very much support having cattle in the pasture. Mm -hmm. Pasture <laughs> is good for cattle as opposed to concentrating them into feedlots. But as long as that is done with the protection of the stream as well and. The, the, I, I think I read from the Mastitis Foundation that the uh, production of milk and the cost savings in veterinary bills was something approaching $200 per cow. So you multiply that times a 100 cow herd, uh, that's real savings on an annual basis. And we know um, Chesapeake Bay Foundation partners uh, in a grazers network, and this is a farmer-to-farmer -farmer mentor program um, that we help support to transition farmers either from confinement operations to grazing operations or transition farms that were traditional row crops back into a pasture situation. And going back and speaking to those farmers that went through this transition, uh, they can command a higher price um, for their milk. It's not a, a price set in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. like it is for the rest of the dairy industry. And more and more consumers uh, and uh, meat eaters want to purchase grass-fed beef. So that, it, too, is commanding a higher price. So, you know, you have the decreased veterinary costs. You can have better milk production and command a higher price at market for either your milk or uh, the meat that you raised on the farm. So it is a very good, uh, I think the expression you used, triple bottom mm -hmm. line um, example of how agriculture and the economy and the environment can all exist in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And you don't end up with these concentrated piles of manure. If, if cattle are out to pasture um, and they go to the bathroom, which they will, um, because you have a better land-animal ratio, it's, it's not an environmental problem. In fact, it improves soil health and helps keep that pasture uh, going for future generations of cows. Very good. Um, I think I'll, I'd like to have you end with just a quick description of CBF's farm in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, where we are doing a lot of these practices. I, I don't know of many, if any other, conservation environmental organizations 
working on the array of policies and education and restoration as we are uh, also have a, a, a an operating farm. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the Claggett Farm. I will. It's one of my favorite places. Um, when session is done, it's one of the first places I go uh, to get away from my desk and to get that perspective again because it is usually the spring and they're very busy with planting. So it's a, it's a good place to be grounded, no pun intended. Mm. Um, we've had this farm for over 30 years. Uh, the operation has changed over those 30 years, but it's a large vegetable operation that's done um, very sustainably, and we uh, produce... Partnering uh, with the D.C. Community, the DC, yep. DC Community Food Bank. Yes, um, one of our partners uh, is the D.C. Area Food Bank. Um, that partnership has grown, so I think almost 40% of the vegetables produced on the farm end up going to the food bank and then distributed to different service organizations throughout the D.C. area to get fresh fruit and vegetables uh, to families in need, which is one large part of the operation. Um, and they help on the farm. Don't volunteers come out from the food bank? They do. That We have regular volunteers from the food bank. Um, and what's really neat is that some of the recipients through the different service organizations also now come out with their family or friends and put in volunteer time, but also want to see where their food is coming from. You know, the farm allows us to educate people on where their food comes from and how different choices in agriculture have a different impact on the bay. Uh, we do have grass-fed cattle. We have grass-fed sheep now as well because they can graze together very happily. Um, and so we want to demonstrate um, a different way of farming, a sustainable way of farming, and to show people, again, the impact of your food choices um, on the environment, but also the farm economics of doing it. Those, um, those cattle and sheep are fenced out of the stream. <laughs> have you asked them if they're happy or not and feeling good? You know, I, I have not. I try not to get too attached to, to the cows and the sheep because I have purchased some lamb before. So I go and I like to make sure that, um, that they're happy. But you can see the different fencing that's put up, The you know, the different um, water sources that your farm needs to have when the cattle don't have access to a stream to drink instead. Um, we have a Christmas tree operation Again, so people can see what a real Christmas tree looks like, not necessarily uh, one that's shipped in from outside of the watershed. And uh, it is really just a great place to go and to, to learn about farming. Um, the staff down there is extremely knowledgeable, and they're spending more and more time mentoring and working with other farmers um, who want to make uh, the transition. We'll get out on the farm someday and talk to our farm manager, Michael Heller, at some point. It's just a remarkable place, donated to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation by the Claggett family, longtime uh, uh, Upper Marlboro family going back generations. And we take students there, we take adults, we take legislative leaders. Uh, we've had a number of farm uh, uh, confabs there with farmers coming in, seeing what we do and helping uh, to tell us what our ideas they have, uh, which we've incorporated into the farm. So, Allison, thank you very much. Uh, I know you've got a very busy couple of months to th three months coming up with the legislative session in Maryland. Uh, I think 2016 is going to be a great year. We're still seeing some wonderful signs in the Chesapeake Bay of improvement. 
the clarity of the water everybody is talking about. Even from last spring through the summer and then into last fall, the water clarity has been outstanding. From seven and eight feet of visibility in Baltimore Harbor to 10 to 15 feet in the Southern Bay, the oyster industry is growing by leaps and bounds. Over a million uh, bushels of oysters harvested this year, uh, and even the underwater grass is uh, starting to come back. So there's a lot of signs that things are going in the right direction, but I don't think any of our listeners, and certainly not any of our staff, uh, need to be told that there's a long way left to go. So keep at it. Thanks so much. I'm Will Baker for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and uh, tune in or uh, search our website cbf.org for other information. And of course, all of our back podcasts are filed there as well, cbf.org. Thanks so much, Allison. Thank you, Will.